0: We're continuing this Sunday in a four-part series on the Messianic names that are found in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 is actually up here on the wall. That's the first part of the verse, and that's the second part of the verse. And last week, we took some time to look at the name Wonderful Counselor, and we spent some time thinking about the wisdom of God and how he imparts that wisdom to us and how important it is. For us to have godly wisdom. So today we're gonna hop down to the next name, which is Mighty God. Before we read the the text, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we're gonna kind of take a step back in time. For most of us, some of us here this morning are in kindergarten or haven't yet got to kindergarten, but most of us, kindergarten is in the rearview mirror. Remember story time? Remember you just kind of you know lay down on your mat and close your eyes, and the teacher, if they were a good teacher, picked out a great book. And you can just close your eyes and imagine that you were in the story, in the adventure. So we're going to do that this morning. You, if you want to lay on the floor while I read, you can, you don't have to. You can close your eyes if you want to. Uh, this is a story. The book is called "The Silver Chair." It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis uh, wrote. If you've never read these books, even if you're an adult, you should read them. These are tremendous stories. C.S. Lewis is a great storyteller. And we're going to read a couple pages from this this book this morning. And we're going to meet a young girl named Jill who came to this particular world with a friend of hers, but they have been separated by reasons I won't explain quite yet. You'll learn later on. Uh, And she comes across... A situation in which she's terribly, terribly thirsty, but there's something preventing her from drinking from the stream. That's where we pick up the story. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came out into an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf's stones throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into into a stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay there with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lions at Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes had looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. "'If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment,' thought Jill. "'And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth.' Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried. She couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long it had lasted, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours." And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only first she could get a mouthful of fresh water. If you are thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words that she had heard since Scrub, that was her friend, Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second she stared here and there wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty... Come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about the animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move at this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, and a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing, she had come a step nearer. Do, do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and and emperors, cities, and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, hear the word of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pause for a moment before we come to study your word, and we ask that you would be our teacher. Lord, we come this morning, some of us with heavy hearts and much confusion, others with us uh, with a sadness. Some come, Lord, filled with joy and thankfulness for uh, the week that has just passed, experiences that were had with friends or family. Lord, some of us come very mindful of you, and others of us come not even sure that you exist. Father, I thank you that you know each one of us. You know the beginning from the end. You know every day of our life before one of them has ever been lived, before we were ever conceived. And you have loved us with an eternal love. So, Lord, it is just not Important for us to come here and hear the words of man. They are of no good to us. They are of no use to us. We hear those words all day long and they offer no solutions. They offer no ultimate cure to the issues that plague this world and therefore that plague us. And so, Father, we pray that you would allow us to set man's wisdom aside for a few moments and that your eternal truth would ring in our ears. Lord, we thank you for Advent. We thank you for the reminder of Jesus' first coming and, and what that put into motion that results in your grace being given to us and salvation coming to us, not because we've earned it, but because you have freely given. So Lord, we pray that you would teach us. Father, I pray that you would forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know and understand today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well as I said, we'll we'll come back to Jill and her missing friend in the line a little while later on, towards the end of the sermon, but for our purposes Right now, let me tell you where we're headed uh, in Sermon in a Sentence. Isaiah's second name for Messiah, which is mighty God, we've just read, is unsettling, reminding us of his vast, infinite might while identifying our rebellious hearts. Now, you may be saying to me, Tom, I I heard the names and I heard mighty God, and yes, the, the notion of of, of kind of a vast mighty God, I'm, I'm getting that, but I'm not so sure that you've hooked me here with this notion that I have a rebellious heart. And if you're thinking that, you're, you're thinking right as you should be. There's nothing obvious in this text about my heart or your heart or anybody else's heart, but it's rather when it's held up against the character of God. When we see our lives a comparison to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that it begins to unsettle us just a bit. And I think a little unsettling from time to time is probably actually a good thing. I have three uh, observations about this name, Mighty God. We're going to kind of move around the Old Testament and the New Testament, don't, don't panic. You don't have to keep up in your own Bible, well, you can, but the passages will be on the screen as well. But I wanna look at, at this notion of understanding Jesus understanding Messiah in the context of mighty God and why that might be a bit disturbing to you and to me. My first observation is that we need to understand the vastness of God's might, the vastness of God's might. So when uh, Jill is talking to the lion, and the lion's name is Aslan, he's the Christ figure in, uh, in all of the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, she is asking him, whether or not he'll let her get this drink or whether he'll harm her. And in the process, she says, do you eat little girls, right? Do you eat girls? And he says, I have swallowed entire realms, right? This speaks to the vastness of God that was playing out in C.S. Lewis's mind as he thought about the power and the might and the strength that are found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, The prophet Isaiah puts it this way, one book later. So if you're flipping through your Bible and you come to Isaiah and you keep going, the next chapter is another prophet and his name is Jeremiah. And he spoke to the people of his day and he speaks to us today through the word of God. And he talks about this mighty one. He says this, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, there's that exact name, mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. We see here a picture of a God that it, would, that it would seem is beyond your control and my control. It would seem that we've come across a God who is, is not interested in us defining him, but rather is, is absolutely settled on making himself known to us in a way that is actually, act, actually understandable and applicable to our lives. How, how does a God of vast might bring themselves into the presence of mere humanity in a way that we can understand and appreciate and apply in relationship to him. And so Jeremiah is clear that God, you, you are, we're not on equal footing with you here. We, it's not like you know, you're a half step above us. You are infinitely higher than us. So how do we have a relationship with him? Well, it's interesting in uh, Jesus's day, if you go to Matthew chapter seven, you go to the very end of chapter seven, you see that Jesus has come to a concluding time in a, in a teaching in his life. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's a time when it says it starts out in Matthew 5, Jesus went out to a hillside and he sat down and he called a bunch of disciples and said, hey, I have some things I want to share with you. And he began to teach them many things. And those three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, are a culmination of all the things that Jesus taught on that particular occasion. And this is what Matthew writes at the end of that teaching. He kind of looks around and he observes the crowd and he listens to what they're saying and the reaction they're having to Jesus' teaching. And he writes this when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And that word authority means like godly authority, like all authority. They were dumbfounded. They were perplexed. They couldn't believe their ears. They were hearing something they had never heard before. They were hearing an authority, excuse me, they are hearing an authority that sounded as if God himself were speaking. Now I've probably preached one or two good sermons in my life, Right? I'm probably a slightly above average preacher. My guess is that none of you have heard me for the last year or two or the last 20 years or so have ever just like fallen out of your chair. It's something I said, right? You never staggered out of, out of North Kirkwood Middle School or our new building here saying, oh my gosh, I was so overpowered by the authority of those words, I just can't believe what just happened to me. And if you think that's going to happen someday, you probably ought to find another church, right? It's not gonna happen, why? Because I'm a mere man. I'm just a person like you. Maybe I I studied a little more during the week to be able to stand up here and hopefully not bore you too badly for, for 25 or 30 minutes. I've done it a few times, so maybe it doesn't hurt too much to listen, but I'm just a person. But when Jesus stepped onto the planet and he began to speak, people were overwhelmed. Why? Because he was a representation of the authority of the mighty God. God is not aided by my belief, nor is he hindered by my lack of faith. God doesn't ask your permission, nor does he seek your counsel. And I believe this is where we begin to feel the rub just a bit. I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily like it when there's a God that I cannot control. When there's a God that I can't say, Lord, here's what I really need you to do. Now, now would you please do that for me? I like to be in control. I think I actually have some pretty good ideas, quite frankly. You know, I I actually think that I have five or six ideas that if I could enact them, the United States would be a much, much better place to live. I'm pretty confident in that, right? I, I, I could probably, as I lay in bed at night, I think, what would I do if I were the president? Well, I would certainly do this. And oh my gosh, it would be so much better off if I did. And I come up with great ideas. And ironically, not only would they be good for the United States, but they'd be great for me. <laughs> they would be wonderful for me. Why? Because that's what people do with power. That's what people do with might. They use it to their own advantage. It's not to say they don't help other people sometimes. It's not to say they can't do good things, but one of the temptations that we have when we're in control is to look out for our own good and, and not worry about others, right? So if you're like me and you, you, you drive in the left-hand lane of the highway, right, which is the lane where people are supposed to be going at least five to 10 miles over the speed limit, or you're not supposed to be in that lane at all, right? And you get behind a car, and I'm getting an amen. All right, now we're going. And you get behind a car that's going like 56 and a half miles an hour. And what's the thought that crosses your mind? Why don't they make cars that have bazookas mounted on them? That's the thought that goes to your mind. Because what would be really great for me right now would be to blow that car into oblivion, right? Who cares who's in that car and what their story is? Why aren't they going 72 miles an hour, right? Why are they in my way? That's what we do with power. And what's unsettling to us is that God actually can look into our hearts. And we cannot control him by our whims. We cannot control him by our man-made philosophy, but he is righteous, and he is holy, and he is perfect, and his control is actually the control that matters, and that unsettles our hearts. It's interesting, in these four names in this passage in Isaiah, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This one, right, Um, Mighty God, is the only one that theologians really argue about. And it's because there are a group of theologians that want to take the divinity out of this name and say, really what that means is not mighty God, but it means a person who has, you know, like superhuman God-like strength. Why are we arguing that? Because we don't want them to be in control. And as I said, when we begin to see the vastness of God's might, our hearts begin to get just a little disturbed. Secondly, not only do we need to see the vastness of God's might, but we need to understand the character of God's might. So the verses on the screen now are from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and he says this, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty, There's there's that name again, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. How does God use this strength? How does God apply this might that is his? The the, the might that allowed him to speak and universes came into being. Is he going to squash us at the first opportunity that comes his way? No, look at how God, Look at the character behind all that God does, right? God is not partial. He takes no bribe. He cannot be influenced by anything outside of himself. And he executes justice. How? By caring for the fatherless and widow and loving the sojourner by giving him food and clothing. In other words, as God defines justice, not as man defines, how man defines justice is completely Irrelevant. I don't need to know how other people define justice. I need to know what God says about justice. And God says justice is generous care for the helpless. Justice is using the power that you have. Justice is using the limited resources at your disposal. Justice is taking the influence that that abides in the relationship you have with others and caring for those people who cannot care for themselves. He says, not only is is it care, but this love, is it knows no boundaries. I don't just love my friends. I don't just love my family. I love the sojourner, the stranger. And I love them in a very practical way. I meet their physical needs. Jesus says that, the, or the, uh, excuse me, the prophet Isaiah says that the character of God, the character of this mighty one is a God that cares for the helpless, that cares for the stranger and for the disadvantaged. And you actually see this in the teaching and the life of Jesus. If you go to Luke 14, Jesus is talking to a bunch of folks that are gathered around. He says this, when you give a dinner, now let me stop there for just a second, because most people in this room could give a dinner. It might just be hot dogs and chips, but all, I think almost everybody, if not everybody in this room, could give a dinner for a couple other people, Okay. Doesn't have to be a huge dining experience, amazing. We just give a dinner, right? Or a banquet, that's the name for a party, right? Don't invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Look at the name that Jesus gives his people. He gives them his name, the just ones. Why? Because we've caught on. Because the spirit of God and the word of God has helped us understand the character of God's might as it's transferred into our lives looks like taking care of other people. It looks like giving ourselves in compassion and mercy and grace so others can be well cared for. I don't do this as often as I should. I try to, but quite frankly, I just fail at it. time to time, but the, but the Salvation Army bell ringers are out this time of year, right? And they're standing outside, and it was nice and warm. They really had a nice job about a week ago, but now it's, it's getting pretty cold, and it's getting pretty nasty, and I do my best when I'm running out of stores to remember to stop and say, can I get you a cup of coffee, or when I come out, can I get you hot chocolate? You know, you know is there something I can do? I don't do it as much as I should, but I try to do it every once in a while, but then I read this week that the Salvation Army employees, the people they employ to be bell ringers, a lot of those folks are homeless. And do you know they have a quota that they have to meet on a regular basis? And if they don't meet their quota, they can actually be released from their job. So the very people we're trying to help, we actually could end up hurting even worse. Now, before we start throwing rocks at the Salvation Army, I got to turn around over my shoulder and I said, well, Tom, how many times have you actually given a dinner or a banquet the way Jesus describes? How far are you going out of your way? What you're saying is if you remember, you're going to help somebody. But if you forget, you're going to sleep just fine tonight. See, I can't throw rocks at anybody when I look at the might of God and his character because it unsettles my own heart because I know that it's not within me to love in that way. I know that I'm not the guy throwing the parties for the poor. I know that my heart does not reflect the character of the mighty God. It's important that I understand not only the vastness of his might, but also the character of his might. And thirdly, we all must understand the grace of God's might. How does God ultimately use his power? To what end? Not just in in the process of life in, day in and day out, justice and mercy. Yes, those things are important. But, But what was the end game for God when it came to his power, if it wasn't your salvation and mine? So I'm going to take you to Romans Chapter 5, and and I've kind of cut it down a little bit. The passage is a little longer than this, but I wanted to kind of get to the heart of the matter here. The grace of God's might, while we were still weak, right, unable to help ourselves, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. How does God choose to use his infinite power? He saves those who don't have strength to save themselves. If God doesn't save us, if God doesn't use his power to rescue us, we are lost. We don't need the lifeguard to stand on the shore when we're in water over our heads and the riptides pulling us out to the sea and telling us just to stroke a little bit harder to get into land. We need somebody to come and rescue us because we do not have the strength and we will drown if we're left to ourselves. I don't need Jesus as a friend to speak into my life occasionally. I need one who can save me because I don't have the ability to save myself. Paul goes on, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only does Jesus save those who don't have the power or strength to save themselves, but he redeems those who don't even have the power to obey him. That notion there of sin, it means you fall short. It means you don't do everything that you promised to do or think you should do, and, and you end up not getting it all the way done. It's not that you intentionally make it up your mind you're going to go hurt somebody but because of your lack of seeing it to the end that's ultimately the result so I mentioned we were going to come back to Jill in a little bit and I'm going to read a much shorter couple of lines but the the conversation goes on uh, and she does get a drink of water and she's very refreshed and so uh, Aslan's ready to move on and, and kind of pick up on a different topic and let me just read a couple of lines for you here come here said the lion and she had to She was almost between his forepaws now and looking uh, straight into his face, but she couldn't stand that for long, so she dropped her eyes. Human child, said the lion, where's the boy? He fell over the cliff, Jill uh, Jill said, and added, sir. She didn't know what else to call him, and it sounded cheek to call him nothing. How did he come to do that, human child? He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? I was showing off, sir. That is a very good answer, human child. So do that no more. It would be one thing if I didn't quite obey God, but it didn't have any impact on your life. It would be okay if my not obeying God only hurt me, but the facts are that my lack of doing everything I should hurts the people around me. It's harmful to my marriage, it's harmful, harmful to my children, harmful now to my grandchildren at this stage of my life, it's harmful to my coworkers, it's harmful to the people around me because when I don't obey God, I live for myself. When you don't obey God, you live for yourself and ultimately that's going to harm others. Jill's friend fell off the cliff because he was trying to keep her from doing something really, really silly. How many people have been harmed in their life by trying to help me avoid the silliness of living outside of the power of God? How does Jesus, how does this Messiah express grace? While we were, stay back on that page for just a minute. While we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son not just people who couldn't quite get it right but people who actually hated him nehemiah puts it this way in the old testament he says this speaking for his his he and his folks now therefore our God the great there's that name again the mighty and the awesome god who keeps covenant and steadfast love let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us yet you have been righteous In all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we, in response, as it's understood, have acted wickedly. How do I respond to God's strength? I try to go my own way. And yet God uses his power not to crush me, not to use me as an example of what happens when people don't love him the way they should, but rather he uses his strength to bring salvation and to bring grace We haven't really looked at verse seven too much yet, but let's just recall what it says. Of the increase of this mighty God's government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord, the power of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God's heart is always to use his might for justice, for mercy, and for love? Will we receive this mighty God? Will we put our trust in that name? As unsettling as it may be, will we understand that by submitting to him as the mighty God, he actually brings life into who we are and how we live? As I said last Sunday, what we're doing uh, this month is ending our each of our sermons with one of our elders sharing a little bit of their story of how They've been impacted by that particular name of that week. And so Dan McGinnis is going to come, and he's going to take two or three minutes, and he's going to wrap up. And normally the elder would be lighting the candle, while I'm saying that, but because we have all this stuff over here. It's kind of in the way. So I'm actually going to be the candle lighter this Sunday. Dan, thanks for being here and sharing.
1: Thank you. Good morning. My name is Dan McGinnis, and I'm one of the elders here at Green Tree. It's my privilege to briefly share and give testimony of how God has been mighty in my life. Like all life stories, mine starts as a child. At eight years old, at a nighttime church service, I heard people talking about the family of God. I had no control over being at this church service or not. As an eight-year-old kid, I obviously went wherever my parents decided. But this night was a divine appointment made by a mighty God with a powerless kid to bring me into his family. Because that night, I first understood that by faith in Jesus, I was now part of the family of God. Also in the early part of my life, and on through my teenage years, I recall how God put a faithful great uncle in my life, who although I would only see him sporadically, he would never fail to ask me about my walk with the Lord. I never really knew how to answer him verbally at that age, and I'm sure I only gave him one word answers or maybe just a grunt. But the question always stayed with me long after we parted. And every time before we would part, he would genuinely look me in the eye and say, God bless you, Danny. I can see the thread of our mighty God's faithfulness continue in my life to my freshman year in college, when my parents dropped me off at school in Virginia, far from home, with no car, no phone, no friends, and a once a week long distance phone call and letters from home is my only connection to what I knew. That year was tremendously lonely for me, but I've seen how God in his might used that year to both soften my heart to hear his voice and strengthen my faith in him, experiencing that he was with me even when no one else was. As an adult, I've also seen God's might in my marriage. As I would imagine, like most people, our marriage has gone through some very dark times when checking out seemed to be the best option. In those times, God was faithful to protect us and provide people in our lives who would counsel and encourage us. In my life, I have seen the promise that he will be called mighty God is true. I have been powerless, and he has been powerful. A favorite verse of mine is Romans 5.8, saying how God demonstrates his love for us by dying for us while we were still sinners. Just prior to that, it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Looking back on my life, I can see and do see how God is a mighty God, a God of just the right time, a God who has power to the powerless. Today, now in my 40s, our mighty God is teaching me that things in life I think I so badly want to own actually end up owning me. Our mighty God is using people in my life to show that all of my missed opportunities or just plain foolish mistakes do not define me and I have the freedom to let them go. I give witness that Jesus, a child born to us, is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Please pray with me. Our mighty God, thank you that you and you alone are mighty to save. Thank you that you and you alone have chosen in your goodness to love me and us, broken, rebellious people, And you are the power that defeats our sin and breaks our chains in which we so easily and willingly wrap ourselves. Thank you that our weakness is overcome by your might and that you make us your treasures of infinite worth. Who else but you alone, God, can promise to send a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father and the prince of peace and give him as a gift to us and for us. Who else but you and you alone can establish forever the government of all peoples and all times to be upon his shoulders? Yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
2: Good morning. Tom spoke about God's authority, his ability to save his people, redeem them, keep them safe. We have all prayed for people who are dealing with illness, praying for healing, healing, even when it's terminal. We pray for miracles, just as Jesus did so many times while he was on earth. The people Jesus healed had tremendous faith. Many of the people we pray for have tremendous faith also, but do not receive the same physical healing. Our family experienced this nearly 20 years ago when we received devastating news that Cindy's sister, 44-year-old Diane, was diagnosed with amyloidosis. It's a fatal disease, and she lived two and a half years knowing that time was growing short. Naturally, we prayed for a miracle of physical healing, but we also prayed for God's presence, peace, and strength. She asked her husband, who's a doctor, about a support group. He told her to look in the mirror because at that moment, she seemed to be the only person in the state of Illinois who had it. Consequently, not a lot of research has been done. Diane was very active in the community of Carbondale, Illinois, particularly known for starting Lights Fantastic Christmas Parade, which she chaired until she died. It's still going strong. Her visibility drew a lot of attention to this disease. Maybe God used that visibility to inspire research. Shortly after the diagnosis, Diane and Cindy began a weekly Bible study with three of Diane's friends. This took their already close relationship to a whole new and treasured level as it was now grounded on a God-centered, eternal foundation. She found the book of Daniel to be most inspiring as she realized God had a purpose for her short life. After Diane died, one of the women was diagnosed with cancer and passed away, another with ALS. Maybe God used this group to prepare them also. On the other hand, Cindy and I prayed over prayer cards at St. Louis Children's Hospital weekly. We rarely knew the results, but one week, the chaplain expanded on the need for prayer for a family who was just being taken off of life support. Next week, the chaplain happily reported that the child had, was miraculously recovered and running around the halls behaving like a typical boy. We may not see the entire picture when the person we pray for dies. We should keep watch for the many side miracles as God teaches, touches the hearts of not only the person we pray for, but the family, friends, and communities that surround this person. He may also inspire us to be helpful in practical ways as well as spiritual ways. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly and gracious Father, we surrender to you and your authority. We know you love us and want the best for us. Help us understand when what we pray for isn't what we need, but what is best for our spiritual growth. Give us patience to wait for direction and accept them unconditionally. In your son's name we pray. Good morning. Good morning. So my question for us this morning is,
3: where is this mighty God today? Given the horrific events of the past several years, I think one could question what happened to the all-powerful God described in scripture. Has he decided to take some time off? It was God's apparent inability to do anything about the problems in the world that led me to conclude that he was irrelevant. This belief was reinforced by the church I was attending when I grew up. The church did not believe that Scripture was God's Word, just stories assembled to give us guidance about how to live our lives. Jesus may have been the Son of God, but when he left the world, apparently he checked out. In short, I saw no reason to pursue God because He could do nothing for me. As a result, I lived my life by my own rules and it wasn't very pretty. Fortunately, God decided to pursue me when I was 27 years old back in St. Louis, attending that same church. uh, My kids were old enough to attend Sunday school and I was approached to teach a class and this horrified me. Now, I had gotten nothing out of going to Sunday school growing up, so I considered it to be a big waste of time. Meanwhile, my wife had been trying to get me to go to another church that was about five times as big as the one we were attending. I had resisted her pleas to change churches, but given the prospect of having to teach Sunday school, (laughs) it suddenly seemed like a much better idea. More than likely, there were going to be plenty of Sunday school teachers at this new place. <laughs> the one hitch was that I had to attend what they called a new members class. This class was held over ten Sundays, but I only needed to make eight to get in. <laughs> Although somewhat of a nuisance, I felt like, mm, I can stick this out. The class turned out to include an introduction to the Bible. For the first time in my life, someone told me that the Bible was the inerrant Word of God and that not only had God not abandoned us, but He had left behind the Holy Spirit. Now, this all sounded pretty ridiculous to me, as many of the stories in the Bible seem quite absurd. People don't get swallowed by fish or thrown into furnaces and survive. And I certainly did not believe in spirits. I was not shy about telling people about this. And I had some pretty good arguments. And I took them to the pastors and even to my wife and explained to them that they didn't know what they were talking about. (laughs) However, they were all patient with me and for my questions. And at times they even had to admit that they didn't understand everything in the Bible, but they had learned that they had to accept some things by faith. What they did do was get me to understand that Scripture is not rooted in fairy tales, but in history. In particular, I began to look at Old Testament prophecy that seemed to be fulfilled 700 years later. Now the light was beginning to come on. Over the next five or six weeks I delved into Scripture and how it was clearly pointing to Jesus. At the same time, unbeknownst to me, the Holy Spirit was working on me, and I began to accept the notion that God was powerful enough to do things beyond my imagination. This all culminated one morning in class when everything suddenly came together. In an instant, I went from a skeptic to being convicted that the Bible was actually true. At that moment, I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. From that day on, my life radically changed. People that knew me were scratching their heads when, ironically, I started teaching Sunday school (laughs) and going to Bible studies and, more importantly, living a different kind of life, not out of obligation but out of gratitude what Christ has done for me. There is a lot more to my story I could share, but as Tom mentioned, he only gave me three minutes. So suffice it to say that I am a walking testimony that God is working mightily in the world today and has the power to save and change our lives. Can you join me in prayer? Lord, you are an amazing God with power beyond our imagination. Thank you for using your Word, your Holy Spirit, and other believers, including my wife, to change my hard heart and skeptical mind. I also want to thank you for churches around the world that preach the truth of the Scripture each week. I pray that Green Tree will never lose sight of our main focus of spreading the Gospel and growing disciples in our community and others through our church plants and missionary efforts around the world. Finally, I want to thank you for the chance to celebrate your coming into this world throughout the Christmas season. I pray that we would all be able to set aside some time to contemplate and worship the joy and the hope that you have brought into the world. Amen.